You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Well, in working on our next book, The Goddess in the New World, we have been reviewing research on feminism and the goddess in recent months, including uh, Dr. Jordan Papers through the Earth Darkly, Female Spirituality and Comparative Perspective, and Dr. Rian Eisler on her books, The Chalice and the Blade and The Real Wealth of Nations. And next week, Her Excellency, excuse me, Her Excellency Chief Ina Olomo will join us to review her book, The Core of the Fire, A Path to Yoruba Spiritual Activism, with much more to come. Why? Because for millennia of recorded history, the human spirit has been imprisoned by the fetters of male dominance or androcracy. Our minds have been stunted and our hearts have been numbed when women are no longer treated as breeding animals and beasts of burdens and have equal access to health care, education, and political participation. Not only the female half of humanity, but all of humanity will benefit, and we need that desperately right now. Tonight, we approach this injustice from a personal life perspective, that of the extraordinary female abstract expressionist Lee Krasner, through whom the mind and heart of the celebrated biographer Gail Levin probed. Gail Levin is the author of Edward, Edward Hopper, an intimate biography, Becoming Judy Chicago. Judy Chicago joined us when? I don't know, a couple of months ago. And many other books on 20th century and contemporary art. She is Distinguished Professor of Art History, American Studies, and Women's Studies at the Graduate Center of Baruch College of the City University of New York. Gail Levin was reviewing this just-released work at the Maryland Art Place. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Gail. Thank you very much. It's a Pleasure to be here with you. How was your introduction to Baltimore, courtesy of the Maryland Art Place yesterday? Not well, yesterday, but my first visit. I really enjoyed Baltimore, but I had a, a wonderful time there and a terrific crowd. Well, we'll start with who was the real Lee Krasner? Wow. <laughs> a wonderful artist, a terrifically brilliant woman, um, for me, a kind of mentor figure, a very nurturing person, and um, just uh, a person really worth knowing. Well, one of the reasons why your book was so necessary was because of the way, um, well, our andriotic culture, or androcratic culture, I'm a little tired, sorry, uh, was because of the way our culture treated her. That was more than demeaning in some instances, but outright sometimes distortion and maybe some fabrications there. Would you give us a few examples of attempts to diminish her as a as an artist uh, as, or as a person? Uh, well, one I think uh, she was when she married Jackson Pollock, or when she got together with him in '42, or when they married in '45. She was already very well established. Um, as an artist, having worked on the WPA, for example, the Works Progress Administration under Roosevelt, and actually even on the WPA, uh, which was run by a woman, and women had pretty good opportunity, she was assigned to the team of a guy named Max Spivak, and um, he called her his research girl, 
And also assigned to the same team was the future art critic Harold Rosenberg, um, whom Spivak called his reader. But I will say he had someone else that he called the person for washing the brushes. So Krasner there came off better than she might have. Then there's the famous moment um, when this photograph was taken for Life magazine, which was basically based on a, a protest to the Metropolitan Museum um, the photograph became known and the group became known as the Irascibles. And uh, so this is like 1950 um, when women are, you know, back really encouraged by a lot of propaganda to be back in the home so that Rosie the Riveter gives up her job to the returning soldiers who need their jobs back, having done her task. And Ornette Newman, a friend of Lee Krasner's, an artist, a friend of Jackson Pollock's calls up because they can't really put this protest forward without Pollock's name. Krasner answers the phone. They simply ask to speak to Jackson. They don't ask Krasner would she like to participate. And she had a real history of protesting. For example, she protested um, as part of the artist union when artists were thrown off the WPA and were out of work and couldn't possibly sell their work in the Great Depression. There was really no collecting of contemporary art to speak of. Uh, they would go out and protest, and they would often get arrested, uh, many of the artists. And uh, so Krasner had a history of that, and she also protested at the Museum of Modern Art as a part of the American Abstract Artist Group with George L.K. Morris and others. So this was much more her role than Jackson's role, but... She was just ignored. Now, some have tried to maintain that the reason she wasn't invited is because she was the artist's wife, and uh, it's a, that's a really ridiculous yeah. excuse. And, for example, in certain groups, like the American Abstract Artists, George L.K. Morris and his wife, artist wife, Susie Forlinghosen, were equally part of the group, and there were a number of artist couples. So that particular group had more equality for women, but it wasn't really characteristic of that time. Well, she was beat up a couple of times uh, with the, pol the police in New York City uh, with some of those um, different uh, uh, I was protests. able to reconstruct the story of one of those demonstrations and arrests because I found a man named Serge Truback's memoir, uh, unpublished, uh, in an archive. And um, he told the story from his point of view, and I realized that it connected perfectly with Krasner's story of the same event. When they got arrested, they wouldn't give their real names. Everybody chose the name of an artist. And Krasner had commented that she gave the name Mary Cassatt, yeah. the turn-of-the-century, 19th-century American artist who worked in Paris and was a friend of Degas. She said, I didn't have much choice. It was either Mary Cassatt or Rosa Bonheur. We just didn't know many women, of many women artists in history. And the men would give different names, too. And she said when they got called before the judge, everybody would turn around to see who had given the name Picasso. And the judge was no wiser for it. This is in the 1930s. Picasso just wasn't a household name like he is today. Oh, yes. You write so well. Really. I well, enjoy thank you very much. I mean, you know... <laughs> I, this week, 
I've been, you know, your book is what, 500 and some pages. The book that we just covered earlier is 850. It's been, that's one of the reasons why we're tired. And the sci-fi channel can really wipe you out at the same time when you're being interviewed all the time. Um, uh, but you write so well, you re- it reads fast. That's what the best part of it was, as far as I was concerned. And I guess it's mainly because, you know, I didn't mention the publisher. Let me do this first. Okay, Gail. Lee Krasner, a biography by William Morrow. And to order this book, you can click on the easy link on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. You will really enjoy this work. I learned so much from this, Gail. Uh, So thank you for writing it and taking the time. How long did it take you? Well, you know, that's hard to say because, of course, I knew Lee Krasner, I first met her in 1971, uh, and I was a young graduate student in those days, and I went to interview her about Jackson Pollock. So in a sense, the work started then. But um, when I was, um, 1977, I was co-organizing an exhibition on the early years of abstract expressionism uh, for the Whitney Museum and the museum at Cornell University, and I... I was working on Krasner then. I wrote about her in that catalog, and that show helped to change the trajectory of her career. And, of course, then I spent a lot of time with Krasner, never imagining I would write her biography or anyone else's, for that matter. She died in 1984. And then I actually got the idea that I would write this biography, having written two others, in um, 2006. And then I won um, three major fellowships. Normally I'm a professor, as you noted, in the City University of New York. That takes a lot of my time. But I had three full years off, which for me is like nine years. So it it actually got written very quickly Mm -hmm. compared to other works. Well, it reads so well, and there's so much in this. Uh, Your notes are terrific. Well, I know that that's to most people, they don't give a damn, but I, that's where a lot of good information is found within the notes and then also acknowledgments. Uh, well, for most people, well, don't like to talk about that. Of course, I want to be very transparent and to have everyone be able to see what my source is. Of course. And I even include a note about various sources that I found problematic. Yeah. So um, I wanted to make sure that mine were completely traceable. I always do that. And the ordinary reader doesn't never has to look at them unless they're interested to know where I got some quotation or some idea. Jackson Pollock and uh, Lee Krasner met, I believe it was in 1936. They partnered. Who was the real Jackson Pollock? Well, that's a good question. Um, he was, of course, born in Cody, Wyoming. Um, the family was kind of Scotch-Irish extraction the thing is, he also, he was uh, around just over three years younger than Krasner, um, who was born in um, 1908. So you figure, uh, the, he grew up in hard times economically, and the family was really moving around quite a lot. The parents' marriage was disintegrating. So that was a, a very hard time, and Jackson Pollock was already having a problem alcohol from his teenage years, and it only got worse, but although he was able to stop drinking for a few years with a particular doctor he found, 
And, of course, Krasner really tried. He wanted to stop drinking. He wasn't able to for most of his life. And Krasner tried to help him. She saw his great talent. And Pollock had come east to study, like his older brother Charles, with uh, Thomas Hart Benton, uh, a realist, regionalist-style painter who was teaching at the Art Students League on 57th Street in New York City. Well, I learned so much about Jackson Pollock here that I'd like to forget um, you know, about his personality. And the, but, but you mentioned that he was being treated early on. He was betrayed by one Dr. Miller that did him a lot of good, from what I remember from your book. Is that correct? Was it a Dr. Miller? Uh, that's not the right name. Oh, but, I'm sorry. But that's all right. The, the point is that it's Heller, I think. Heller. And yeah. Heller um, very tragically was killed. Yeah in an automobile accident, as Pollock would be later. Mm -hmm. And I think the loss of that doctor whom Pollock said he could trust, a man he could trust, who was the man who told him he couldn't drink any alcohol. You know, the treatment of alcoholism was so primitive in those days. And Pollock's last therapist told him it was all right to drink and drive. Can you imagine? (laughs) And, of course, he (laughs) dies in a... A car crashed and had two passengers with him, only one of whom survived and was injured. But um, And that doctor, of course, as you said, said, well, that was suicide. The doctor suspected it, yeah, yeah. but what was the – well, in, in a sense, maybe – what was the doctor thinking to tell him it was all right to drink and drive? Well, I just think that's a lie. I don't think he, he <laughs> believed that was a suicide. I don't think he wanted to take the responsibility. That's – Another patient of that same last therapist uh, also had a problem with alcoholism, and he, she wrote about the experience later, but he told her not to worry about the drinking. They would (laughs) cure the other problems that caused the drinking, and then that drinking would sort of take care of itself. And they also believed, as you said, slept with their patients. They thought that was necessary, and then... Uh, I'm, I'm only saying these things because there's so much to cover in here, and I want to make sure. Well, I that was a kind it. of cult that yeah. developed with a, a group of misguided therapists. But I think the key thing about alcoholism is, of course, with prohibition, uh, for a time it was looked upon as sin rather than as something that really made people sick mm-hmm. and an illness. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe uh, I believe they. We're married in 1945. How important was Krasner to Pollock's career? Well, tremendously important. Some people say there wouldn't have been a Jackson Pollock without Lee Krasner. She really appreciated his great talent. And Pollock was, certainly when not drinking, very uh, reticent to speak, very quiet. And Krasner really uh, introduced him around. She's the one that knew the critics, Clement Greenberg, Harold Rosenberg, uh, other contemporaries like uh, Willem de Kooning, uh, that, you know, Arshil Gorky. Uh, that was very important for getting Pollock's work before the public mm-hmm. and for the way the art world works. Well, the way radio works is we got to take our final break in the hour. Lee Krasner by Gail Levin, and it's a biography published by William Morrow. To order this book, you can click the easy link on the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, UFO investigator and writer and artist, and you're listening to Dr. Bob Aronimus, 21st Century Radio, and I'm very pleased to be a guest here. So, Gail, without Lee Krasner, Pollock's career might not have taken off at all. Is that correct? Well, it would be hard to say, but it certainly wasn't getting anywhere before he met her and and, uh, was... Uh, before they were together, although they were in a show, to be fair, they were both chosen as young unknowns by John Graham, this white Russian emigre who organized in January 1942 a show of um, American and French painting, and they had Picasso, he had Picasso and Matisse and others, and uh, de Kooning, Pollock, and Krasner were some of the young unknown Americans, and Krasner already knew de Kooning and the others, but she didn't know Pollock, she said. She didn't recognize his name, so she went over from her home on 9th Street in New York to his on 8th Street and looked him up, and she saw his painting and saw him, and it was sort of head over heels for both his painting and him, and that's the beginning of that relationship. Was that the exhibit that her painting was in between Picasso and not Brock, but... No, Matisse, yeah. Uh, yeah Between but, Picasso and Matisse, <laughs> she was thrilled to be in that show. <laughs> well, who wouldn't? <laughs> That's just incredible. That's wonderful. Well, okay, well, got to get Because started. Krasner always said that there were two artists that really influenced her, um, Matisse and Pollock, and she wasn't ever married to Matisse. <laughs> yeah. So she just, you know, felt that people always put her in Pollock's shadow because she was married to him. Whereas um, with Matisse, uh, she was influenced by him as she was influenced by Pollock, but they never put her in Matisse's shadow because, after all, many artists are influenced by both Matisse and Pollock. They're both such major talents. I would like to say that, and I know you're very interested in the environment, nature was so important for Krasner's own work as it was for Pollock. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, when Hans Hoffman told Pollock... um, you, you, if you work from nature, you'll repeat yourself. He said, I am nature. And that had a profound impact on Krasner, so that instead of um, painting what she saw, she painted her experience of nature, as Pollock did. Yeah. And so her works are very vibrant, and they really resonate with, often with allusions to, um, to nature. It's not a contemporary landscape, but there are feelings of, um, plant life, animal life in the paintings. Oh, yes. Uh, in turn, how did Pollock thank uh, Lee for her dedication and support of his work? Well, yeah. well, in one special way, after Peggy Guggenheim, his art dealer, uh, moved to Europe, he was showing with Betty Parsons in New York, and he wrote to Betty, he convinced Betty that she ought to give Lee Krasner a show, and so she did. He also wrote to his friend and their friend and patron, uh, Alfonso Osorio, also an artist, saying what wonderful work Lee was doing, how strong it was. So he really did support her work as well, a fact not often acknowledged, but he wasn't able to support it in the way she supported his work. That's correct. Yes, he uh, she she must have been a really an extraordinary soul, outspoken. Uh, we need those kind of folks around here today. 
especially with our political climate as we have it now. Uh, the Gosh, our time is almost up, and I, I got five other questions I'm not going to be able to get to. Uh, what kind, when, when did Krasner's work gain the kind of respect that it, uh, uh, too, also sells over, for over a million dollars a canvas? Yes, I mean, she's almost sold for about $4 million, which for a woman artist is a, oh a large amount of money. In 1965, she was given her first retrospective exhibition in London at the Whitechapel Gallery. It was very well received, but she had to wait until 1983 to have a retrospective in America, her own country. It was organized for the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston and traveled to the Museum of Modern Art. She attended the retrospective in Houston, uh, confined to her wheelchair, and by the time the show came to New York, she was dead, uh, and she didn't get to see it, but she knew it was going to be there, and I believe she knew that her work was going to be appreciated more and more. I think she understood that. The feminist movement had an enormous impact on helping her work to gain more attention, uh, starting in the early 1970s. What was Lee Krasner's most important contribution to our planet? Oh, I think she's a wonderful role model for women artists. And one of the finest things she did, uh, she Pollock's work became very valuable, and she died a very wealthy woman, that she didn't live the lifestyle of a wealthy person, she left all of her wealth to a foundation, the Pollock Krasner Foundation, to support artists in need. And it's still doing that. Well, I hope you. So her generosity goes on and on. Isn't that something? What a far-seeing soul. Really, what a very kind person. As far as what I learned from this book, she was so dedicated to, uh, uh, to Pollock, who I felt didn't actually do her justice. Well, look at her modesty. She calls it the Pollock Krasner Foundation, not the Krasner Pollock, mm-hmm. but the Pollock Krasner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when you met her in 1971, that was the last uh, question I'll be able to ma- ask here, but when you met her in 1971, how did you two get along? Well, I was in awe of this woman who was uh, held such an important place in history And I don't know what she saw in me, a young graduate student, but she must have seen something. She couldn't never have predicted I would end up a curator at a Whitney and organize an exhibition and put her work into it. And on top of that, I came to interview her about Pollock, and she didn't mind at all. No, no, she didn't. She seemed to be so kind along those lines. Maybe she was able to, you know, you mentioned a couple of times throughout the work that that she was a little bit afraid of of uh, the paranormal uh, or some things along that line. I, I don't recall the word that you used. Oh, that's right. Well, sort of, sort of maybe the supernatural. Supernatural, yes. Yeah, she had fears from childhood. Mm-hmm. And she, did she seem to work them out just before um, Pollock passed on, did she? She did. Through um, psychotherapy, it seemed to help her. Was she more along the lines of, of, of well, Freudian or, 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 or Jungian? Uh, I, that surprised me, too, to learn that, that Pollock knew and understood uh, the Jungian therapy. Is that correct? Yes, yes. He was in Jungian, thera- Jungian uh, therapy with a Jungian analyst for quite a while. 
Um, Krasner read Jung, but she didn't like the idea of Jungian therapy, and her she understood that her therapist was closer to Freud. He was actually someone that trained with Harry Stack Sullivan's Institute. There we'll have to stop. We're out of time. I'm so sorry, Gail. Boy, we should have had an hour with you. We really should. Uh, Gail Levin's book is Lee Krasner, A Biography, William Morrow. Order this book. You can click on the easy link to the front page of 21stCenturyRadio.com. See you next week. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus.